right, Brooke, Matica, it is so great to have you. It's been an interesting journey to actually get this recording happening. We've had a few bumps in the roads, but finally we are here. We've made it. And yeah, I'm really excited to talk with you tonight. So I actually I came across your work through the Institute of Christian Socialist magazine, The Bias. You posted a really great essay or article on Altos Reap. I think it was on Mary and maybe like around Christmas or something. Mm-hmm. All right, cool. I, I was like, wait, am I making that holiday part up? But no, no. Yeah, great essay uh, article. I'll link that in the show notes for folks to check out. But I, I've been encountering the works of Marcella Altas-Reed for a while now through secondary sources. So I'm really glad I reached out and I said, hey, do you want to discuss Altas-Reed? And you're like, yeah. And you gave me these reads that were super challenging. Um, and I think it's going to be great for you to kind of give us a great intro to who this theologian, who uh, very interesting for several reasons we'll talk about, but Marcella Altas-Reed. Um, but before we get to Altas-Reed, Brooke Matika, right? Matika. Matika, Matika. Go ahead and introduce yourself before we dive right in. Yeah. Um, My name is Brooke. I am going on to my fourth year of seminary at Princeton Theological Seminary. I am one of the co-founders of the kind of resurgent uh, student group here called Seminarians for Peace and Justice that is working to divest the seminary's endowment from the prison industrial complex and the military industrial complex and the fossil fuel industry. So we have a long um, upward uh, hill uh, journey uh, (laughs) that we're climbing that we've been doing for a few years. Um, So that's kind of what I do here. And I'm mainly focusing a lot of my studies on women, um, gender more generally and theology and politics while I'm here. Yeah. And your work through the organization you just mentioned, that is interesting because in my mind, if you take investments out of the fossil fuel industry, the military industry, and what was the third? Oh, the prison industrial complex. Yeah. I mean, there you're not going to make <laughs> What profits. do you have? Yeah, you're not going to yeah. make profits. And so, because that's where the booming, especially we have a crisis of imperialism happening in the world right now. U.S. imperialism is is the U.S. empire is dying internally and abroad. Um, and we have the rise of uh, what Marxist Leninist Maoists would identify of a new social imperialist power, China. And so that, that inter-imperialist war is really reshaping the global economy. And we're about, I mean, today we are heading into um, our next brutal recession. I think it's like the mm-hmm. third or fourth within the last, what, 15, 20 years? It's been really, really bad. And so, yeah, I mean, that's interesting work. I look forward to hearing about how that work goes because, because I mean, really, really rich capitalists and, and our institutions who have bought into capitalism, they want to make profits. They want to maintain not just the money, but also the power. And I will find it interesting um, if you can fight hard enough to, uh, to be able to win that kind of reform. We'll be, we'll see. I, yes, we will see. And I will also be interested to see where, where it goes, we could talk more about that later if you're interested. But yeah, yeah, it's been yeah. an interesting journey. But I do have a really faithful small group of comrades at the seminary that are wonderful and have been doing a lot of hard work. And so mm. it hasn't been lonely. That's excellent. Comrades yeah. at the seminary. I wish yeah. everyone had comrades at the seminary. <laughs> well, very cool. Sweet. All right. So today we're talking about a theologian, Marcella Altos-Reed. Uh, 
she's one of the few you know theologians that we've ever talked about in the last three years on the show and and i think listeners will find out why we're about to talk about them and um so let's go ahead and dive in we got a couple questions here and uh, i i've been excited to to discuss it so why don't you start us off who was marsala altos reed and what are some of their most significant contributions for thinking theologically today yeah um well, in my opinion, um, Altheus Reed is one of the most underappreciated and underutilized theologians um, writing in the liberation tradition. She's an indigenous Argentinian woman. She's living and learning in Buenos Aires. She's living in poverty um, under the perils of colonization. She was a bisexual woman. <laughs> She's thoroughly Marxist, and she's kind of confounding to a lot of people because she's quoting drag queens right next to Dussel, so, and other philosophers and theologians of liberation. I, I think she's darkly hilarious. She's very sharp. She's creative in her writing, and as a writer, her form is very important to me. Um, but I think she's probably most famous for her pretty scathing critiques of liberation theology as making kind of a patriarchal deal with um, colonizers and and not being thoroughly materialist enough because their sexual and gender politics remain idealist. Um, she's also a critic of most feminist theologies. Um, she says they've conducted a lot of rereadings of the Bible, um, but they haven't done any real material analysis. They haven't thought about the hermeneutical circle. And they've been afraid to be indecent, which is kind of their own patriarchal deal that they make, being heteronormative um, and concerned with purity and transcendence and maybe not dealing with the embodied nature of what Altheus rethinks theology should be. Um, and I think she also says that they just don't have the courage to look at theology and really grasp how theology kills women. Um, and they try to resurrect what she calls um, the aborted girls of theology, um, dead women and girls that theology requires. Um, and I think, you know, people, it's hard for people to read her because she's pretty scathing. Um, but she's also, I find her really important for like the most tender moments of our lives. One of my favorite questions she asks is, what use is a theology that leaves us alone in some of our most intimate moments, um, talking about sex, gender, sexuality. And for me personally, and it, that's just been so important to have someone take that seriously. So, yeah. Yeah. When I first encountered Altas Reed through a secondary source, um, it, it rocked me for sure. And I remember for a couple of months, I was really wrestling with whether I was truly being honest about my sexuality and about my mm -hmm. sexual practices with my partner and my my desires and, and all that stuff and um and I, that was a very challenging like period of of, uh, of time for both me and my partner because I was really wrestling with some things internally and trying to figure out well what had we developed um, between me and my, my partner and then also you know what had I developed within myself so yeah, I absolutely agree, and I want to reiterate that one of one of my favorite things about I, I keep on wanting to call her Marcella, but um, I, I do the same thing, <laughs> <laughs> like, like she's my friend or something. Um, and Altas Reed is that she 
really pushes, as you said, for courage and honesty. And it's interesting. It's not the first thing you would think about, like like a lack of honesty and a lack of courage amongst, you know, uh, as a problem within theological production, the, the production of theological ideas and practice. Mm-hmm. And yet she reveals that this is a grave issue. Um, and another thing you mentioned is about that patriarchal betrayal of the masses in Central and South America mm-hmm. in particular, um, with the uh, toward the imperialist ruling nations in uh, the U.S., Canada, and then Europe. Um, and I also think there's an interesting kind of class alliance that happens. There's a, there's a petite bourgeois position where there's where it's mostly petite bourgeois, if you could if you could say that in semi colonies in Central and South America. You're right; they're not they're not working class proletarians and peasants producing this theology majoritively and so you have these like petite bourgeois positions who are producing this theology and wanting the u.s and europe american and european traditions to welcome liberation theology into its circle and she is saying that that should never have been the goal that should never have been the end like consequence. That's what's happened, right? I, yeah. I read liberation, you read liber everybody's read liberation theology, and you can put it in your Twitter bio now. Um yeah. so yeah, I, I think there's a lot of stuff. And one in particular, she really pushed against the idealism of the poor, as you were mentioning. Mm-hmm. You mentioned about how she'll quote uh, both a drag queen and a like a, a Ducell, a Marxist theologian or philosopher. And so she's really wanting the reader to resist the idealism of the poor and i think that's also when i was reading it i was also thinking about the proletariat um sometimes kind of marxists who aren't in uh practice uh, let alone like uh, you know revolutionary struggle we can like talk about the proletariat abstractly when really um i mean the proletariat is really complex and we have a lot of bad ideas we all have <laughs> intermediate ideas we have bad practices we have intermediate and advanced practices and it's actually more complex and that's one thing that marxism leninism maoism gets at for me anyways there's a lot of interesting stuff there i think you said um but yeah those two things on courage and honesty really stuck out to me and also pushing against that uh the the desexualization or the 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 idealism the, the rejection of a concrete and materialist um, observation of who you know we're talking about when we talk about the poor yeah yeah she has this hilarious quote I man I wish I could remember it but she she basically says like um, you know liberation theologians started out strong and then somewhere along the way they thought they could simply add the phrase of the poor at the end of anything, like a magic wave of their hand, and that would suddenly make it an epistemology of the poor, but it's just ideology of the poor, and the way she says it is so hilarious. But yeah, she's she's very courageous, and she requires a lot of courage to really process what she's she's reading, mm. or That's what she's, she's writing, excuse me. Excellent. Oh, cool. Um, so one of the particular things about Althaus Reed is her emphasis on the foundations of sexual experience, of being sexual beings at uh, while doing theology. Mm-hmm. She's not just talking about the, well, you know, the tenured professor somewhere, which, I mean, that's increasingly non-existent. Um, <laughs> Uh, but she's talking about just like people in general. If you're a religious person, or particularly if you're you're a Christian, you're a theologian. I think for Altos Reed. So according to Altos Reed, how is all theology sexual theology? Yeah, 
Well, she she kind of sees theology as obsessively sexual, that very obsessed with the ordering of bodies, uh, with the family, with even like sexual roles and or the absence of sexuality when constructing God, the body of Jesus. Um, and she, she distinguishes, it's probably helpful to note, she distinguishes between sexual theology and theologies of sexuality. So sexual theologies would be the opposite of an idealistic process. So they're materialist theologies that have starting points in people's actions and sexual acts without polarizing the social from the symbolic. And she wants to say that people's sexual experiences reveal the, the falsity of, of the limits between the material and then what is considered the divine in our lives. But theologies of sexuality are still looking for platonic idealistic revelations of what good sexual ordering should be. And of course, these usually end up mirroring um, economic constructions of gendered social ordering. Um, and they do this through, I mean, theology proper, but also through liturgies, hymns, what is considered a sacrament, you know, so maybe marriage, prayers, God the Father. So and all of these sexual metaphors of heterosexuality um, that become so normal to Christianity that they become invisible. And when you try to name them, you're seen as making a theology sexual when they've already they already have a sexual foundation. Um, yeah, I guess I, I could keep saying more, but that's a lot. <laughs> well, that's that's really interesting and, and helpful clarification between sexual theology, which is something that sounds like she is trying to uh, create and, yeah. or, or guess thinking about and doing consciously. And then theologies of sexuality, which have been implicit, whether conscious and mostly unconscious, it's uh, it's become a part of being Christian. You know, when you yeah. say, I believe in Christ, um, you're also s saying something about what you believe in gender and sexuality for the vast majority of Christians across the world, right, yeah. unfortunately. And so that's something to kind of, it doesn't seem, um, or perhaps for some people, it, it may not like pop into their mind immediately, but I mean, that, that's the case, right? If you ask the majority of Christians, uh, they, they may say God is love or mm -hmm. Jesus, God and the Holy Spirit, they were a trinity or they're not a trinity, doesn't matter. But whatever their theological belief is, there's also this implicit sexuality and these sexual mm -hmm. norms um, and gendered practices. And so I think that's really helpful that she kind of distinguishes between the more um, conscious. Can you say more about that? Uh, what her understanding of, of sexual theology uh, in the positive, doing the conscious political work, as opposed to the uh, theologies of sexualities, which I think most people, that, that would be more familiar for folks. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> she, so like the very, I think it's the first chapter of Indecent Theology. She says like, how to do theology without underwear. Um, and she, I, I mean, at a very basic level, she has a lot of, you know, um, funny and catchy titles and lines and quotes. But I think really she wants you to look at what your body does, um, what your body desires, and then look at maybe the historical reasons that your desire has been formed and, and go from there. <laughs> um, I think maybe I could say this and we'll come back around to it. I think what's interesting about her is that she kind of answers her 
her question that I posed earlier, which is, you know, what can we do with a theology that leaves us alone in our most intimate moments? And I think her answer is that it doesn't actually leave us alone. There's always sexual theology, you know, whether it's the robust sexual theologies that she's trying to develop, or it's the theologies of sexuality that are just parroting patriarchal and heterosexual ideology. But we are left alienated um, from our bodies. And to her, we have to we have to start with the reality and the histories of our bodies and then how those shape our desires. And I, I think this is I think if we talked a little bit about maybe her critiques of Mary, that would kind of ground some of the stuff we're talking about. Um, but I I said a lot there, too. So I'd love to hear what you think about that. Well, no, I mean, the I think I remember you, you mentioning the word materialist. And so I'm hearing something about sexual theology is deeply materialist as as opposed to being abstract idealist disconnected from the honest real relations and practices that we're actually in um which assumes also a more critical uh and investigative open to kind of kind of like that constant um analyzing and and, and observation not in like an obsessive way but that hard work of saying okay how have I been relating or acting or mm-hmm. um, thinking in, in this way? And then what needs to change or what's good about it, all that stuff. Um, so there's a materialist aspect. And then when talk about alienation, when I think of sexual theology, I do think it as like a, a relational experience. But you were talking about alienation there. Uh, mm-hmm. Can you clarify what you mean by we are alienated? Yeah. I mean, I think on a very practical level, when when people's entire theologies of sexuality are constructed around parroting patriarchal and heterosexual notions of, of purity, which um, I'm sure a lot of people listening to this have had experiences with, you you approach sexual experiences um, on a very practical level, wanting to keep them very secret. You don't want to tell people about them. You think inside you what you're doing is wrong so you don't want to share your experience and this is not a place where god is to be found this is a moment of sin where you're supposed to be disconnected from god um and you also i think become alienated from your body because you're seeing what your body desires as bad outside of you know a marriage contract of as you know, maybe even unnatural to some people. It's the result of the fall. And now that's imprinted on my body. My body is this bad thing. And I think, you know, personally, I I experienced that growing up being an evangelical kid of the strong mid-2000s purity culture movement. And and that's like an extreme iteration of just generalized patriarchal (laughs) systems. And I, I think that leaves us very alienated. Yeah. Okay. So I hear you saying that sexual theology wants to overcome the sexual alienation that human beings experience today. Yeah. Yeah. And and what the church maybe imprints on us in a more yeah. precise manner. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. No, that's helpful. Yeah. And you, I think you mentioned you wanted to give a few examples, perhaps about um, using Mary, some of the the discourse she uses around Mary. Yeah. I think. Um, Mary's a good example of sexual theologies versus theologies of of sexuality. And of course, she writes a lot about Mary, so it it makes sense to use her example, I guess. But so I think Mary, for instance, um, 
is the story of the Virgin Mary, which, I mean, you mentioned, like when we affirm that we have to say as Christians um, that we believe in one God, we also say, I believe in the virgin birth. <laughs> um, that's a part, it's a, it's an integral part of our most basic theology of what it, what it means to be a Christian. And Mary, I mean, she's, she's ruthless uh, in her <laughs> critiques of Mary. She says that, you know, one of my favorite quotes by her is, is if Mary, oh, let me see if I have it written down. Um, it's, I don't have it, but she basically says if the Virgin Mary had paws instead of hands and a vagina was in her ear, thus making it better for her to hear the word of God and be penetrated by the logos, it wouldn't make an ounce of theological difference to me, mm. which is just her saying, you know, what we're doing in these sexual stories is we're telling myths of bodies that cannot be imitated by these people. But then you use this figure like the Virgin Mary to be the foundation of women's theology. And she says, mm -hmm. if, if she's the foundation of women's theology, we're just admitting that we don't want women to have bodies. Um, and she, I mean, she even goes so far as to call the devotion to the, the Virgin Mary suicidal, where she sees women sacrificing themselves on the altar of, of this false consciousness. And she says it, it um, desouls women and disembodies them when they have to imitate the Virgin Mary. And they're only considered spiritual through their sexual reproduction, which, of course, again, in the story is not sexual. If you were to be in dialogue with someone about you know, the narrative of Mary and the virgin birth. And you say like, well, don't you think it's kind of weird that like, what what's happening between her and God? Like, is she, this isn't sex, I guess people are like, stop making it sexual. Stop making it weird. I remember this was like Twitter discourse like a, mm. a few years ago, like stop making it weird. God didn't have sex with Mary. And like, is it is it people making it weird when we know that normally people get pregnant from having sex <laughs> yeah, and then have to carry and then you know something there might have been consented to or not consented to or it's just it's whenever and then this is her whole point whenever you say like hey this is a sexual theology people are like no it's not stop being obscene stop being indecent stop making this about sex and she's like this is obsessively sexual mm. and it, in, they can't conceptualize most people of christianity that doesn't involve a virgin birth um, and that's a problem for her. And I think a problem for, should be a problem for most people. Yeah. Uh, two things, two things there, Mary, you know, as this ideal. And then also, you know, there's this, um, there's this tendency in some circles where if you see the political like basis of something said at the dinner table or something that's happening out in a public area, and perhaps they're, you know, we've all heard like a, a friend or I don't know, a, not a friend and a family member um, react and say, why do you have to make everything political? Or um, mm -hmm. we see that kind of that that white uh, frustration with the reality of white supremacy is like, why do you have to make everything about race? Mm -hmm. And so she's doing the same thing where um, she's just revealing what's already sexual. It is mm -hmm. it mm -hmm. is a sexual uh uh, a theology of sexuality and it's ordering sexuality and gendered practices and, and ideas and ideals 
And so she's naming it, and she's the one who gets targeted as making everything sexual. Mm-hmm, but she's just mm-hmm. trying to reveal what we're not being honest about. I think that's absolutely right. Yeah. Um, the other part, as you were mentioning with Mary, is that, yeah, a lot of theology, the vast majority of theology, dominant theology, has created this ideal um, of Mary. And my understanding is that she's arguing against it because that ideal um, does not speak to, does not represent, is not anything resembling, not just of women in general, but uh, because there are bourgeois women who I think mm-hmm. can, in many ways, do embody the uh, the Virgin Mary. But we're talking about proletarian, working class, mm-hmm. um, peasant, indigenous women mm-hmm. who have nothing in common with this ideal that has been created and is week in and week out used to... Um, to uh, what's the word I'm looking? Punish to punish uh, this the these classes these exploited and oppressed classes of women mm-hmm. in particular, mm-hmm. and to kind of uh, work towards their subordination mm-hmm. in a class system that is inherently uh, gendered and, and sexual. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think she something that she she never separates her critique of gender from economy and she says poor women hey liberation theologians and and feminist theologians poor women are rarely virgins um because of i mean various life experiences um and sexuality is i mean when you're functioning in, in the economy of family and women kind of being a commodity within that that economy their sexuality is like a currency of sorts, um, unfortunately. And she says, if you really want to write about the theology of the poor and you can't realize this, you're you're being completely ideal, <laughs> completely idealist. And it's not just that these are. Like, she's like, these are Christian women. Um, these are these are Christian people that that are deeply. They go to church. They're deeply Christian. They consider themselves deeply devoted, and they have sex and they have children and they're trans and they and their bodies do all sorts of things that apparently you cannot imagine them to be doing. Yeah, and I think she also mentioned um, these are Christian women and these are non-Christian women. And so mm-hmm. and part of her critique against liberation theology is that it idealizes this like poor, you know, this humble, <laughs> poor Christian um, yeah. in in rural like El Salvador, when yeah. she's like, no, look at the the urban slums of women who are not Christian uh, too. And so it really, yeah, 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 that's one of her things that she pushes. Excellent. Well, cool. Um, so Altas Reed also suggests uh, of the necessity of a materialist approach to theology. So how might we differentiate uh, between three different kinds of theology, a materialist theology, a literalist theology, and then an idealist theology yeah i actually be interested i have some ideas but i'd be interested to hear what what you say first actually if you don't mind well i mean for me this is clearly uh this is a lot of uh, marxist language right here right materialism and idealism in particular and so i guess i'll start I guess I'll, I'll, go, I'll, go, I'll go down the line. Literalist is very familiar to the vast majority of religious people today. We all know literalism, right? You read a text and you impose upon your assumptions without any kind of critical analysis. And you're just saying, well, the text is saying exactly what I'm thinking and in, 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 in speaking. And so Jesus clearly thought similarly to what I was thinking. And so, 
you know, um, all that stuff. You're just reading yourself into the, and, and you're, and you're saying it's literal. Mm-hmm. Um, that that's common. That's well known. Um, and it, so it's basically projecting like a modern ideology. Um, and it also believes itself to be pure. Um, but it also like denies the conditions and denies itself as a form of, of idealism. So it's like this yeah. ultimate form of truth. And, and <laughs> that's like, it's, it's pretty hard to like argue with it, which is why I think we should stop arguing with it. Um, it's a literalist theology, a, an idealist theology, perhaps in a, which is also lib, uh, liberal. I think they're actually both products of liberalism, which um, if you're familiar with Marxism, I think that makes more sense. I'm not talking about the conservative liberal divide. I'm talking about a, a, a philosophy, a, like a set of assumptions that's produced mm-hmm. by a class struggle. But I think um, both the literalist and the idealist theology is also a product of liberalism. And uh, the idealist theology um, also at times will deny the conditions and the concrete relations or uses, I would say, like inadequate means of even trying to read and understand the conditions and then, I guess, wrongly understanding the the conditions in which I, either something was happening in the Bible or a theologian was writing from in some particular period within the last uh, several thousand years. So an idealist theology to me uh, doesn't take the concrete uh, conditions and relations either seriously or it just flat out completely wrongfully understands them. And then for me, coming from a Marxist-Leninist-Maoist, um, a revolutionary communist uh, perspective, I would say a materialist theology isn't someone who just says, hey, we got to take the body seriously. That's a very popular thing uh, that I think actually liberalism is trying to get a hold of. Yeah. Or, or perhaps it's like this kind of weird new movement. Um, it's, it's kind of like reaction against the over-idealism within uh, liberal postmodern theology circles right now. So there's this new emergence of embodiment and body. Um, mm-hmm. And so the materialist theology for some might be like, we just needed to take like like my body individually more seriously. But I would say a materialist theology would best be produced by from a historical materialist lens. Mm-hmm. So um, ideologically, if we understand that the motive of human history is the class struggle and that all other forms of sexual or I'm sorry, of exploitative and um, oppressive relations emerge from that struggle, from that dominant form of exploitation, then that to me is what I would call a materialist theology, where we, to the best of our abilities, understand the general and that enables us to understand the particular. Again, whether that's happening in the Bible, the the particularity from which a theologian was writing, or today, we're really thinking theologically about today. We have mm-hmm. to have a correct, I would say the you know the most advanced kind of ideology and the science that can help us understand what what is really happening and why. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's my that's my thought when I, when I read that. What do you yeah. think, though? That's a good thought. I mean, I think I would share the literalist definition. Basically, the text is what my life should be, and so that's that. <laughs> um, idealism being, you know, having theology, doing theology first, and action second, and that action being guided by your ideas of you know, what is maybe true, what is beautiful, what is good. But of course, these ideas being influenced by, for example, the economy as your guiding factor of value, but never really analyzing that. 
Um, and then I think. Oh, I'm sorry, Brooke, before you move on, that's a great, I think that you articulated the idealist theology perfectly. It's actually driven by ideas and not material relations. And so yeah. these abstract ideas um, uh, are are the drive, are the motor of 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 the material world. And so mm-hmm. I think you said that beautifully. And and that'll become, I guess, important at, and later in our conversation um, when we talk about her idea of the really dad. But um, anyway, and I think materialist theologies, I don't know that I have a lot to add <laughs> from what you said other than that basically very simply, I guess, she sharing with liberation theologians before her would say that it's basically theology always as a second act to this primary analysis um, that you you mentioned. Um, and so in that, it's kind of a reversal of idealism in, in many ways. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess something I, I would add to that, too, is that for me, theology is and forever will be a form of idealism, actually. I don't think mm-hmm. theology can escape um, the realm of idealism, and that's actually okay to me. Now, now some some people would say that, that that's not okay, we should discard it, but I don't actually envision a world, I'm not sure if it's even possible, I'm having a hard time even imagining a world where we do not have um, forms of idealism, ideas yeah, and, and kind yeah. of creative thinking and, and imagination and story. So in socialist transition and even in a world, I would say, of communism, I think we would still have forms of idealism. For me, in a bourgeois world, right, I think we have to understand how our theologies and religions tends to serve the ruling exploited and oppressive classes. And so how can we be creative with our theology and use it um, to aid the material struggles of the masses of exploited and oppressed yeah. peoples. So yeah, I, I, last thing, I, I think theology and religion will be different actually in a world of socialism and a socialist transition to communism. I think it'll start to serve different possibilities, but I mean, everything I would say would be completely kind of uh, hypothetical because I haven't experienced that yet. So we'll see. No, I think that's important to say because you do get to the point where you're reading her and you're like, so why are you doing theology? sometimes you're like wait so because she says at one point um not an indecent theology i think it's in um a different book of hers that uh good theology requires a kenosis of theology (laughs) and really for her i think she she cares about the religious imaginary um and i think she just imagines it more as a dialogical process she really likes frary and dialogical processes and she wants it to be you know, the real life, the ideas then reflected back on by the real life in this hermeneutical circle that she sees is, is very valuable. Um, and so I, I agree. I don't think she wants to really get rid of of theology fully. She just imagines it methodologically completely different than what we have at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. If I could say it like this, I think Altos Reed wants and does actually in her work, well, I guess the content, less the form, but in, in content, she wants theology to be accountable to the concrete analysis of concrete conditions. Yeah. So kind of bring some Lenin in with some Altos Reed, and I, that's kind of where I would get some <laughs> materialist theology. Well, cool. That's an interesting, I, I think there's, there's some interesting stuff there that I would love for more people to uh, to kind of wrestle with because that's yeah. very open. Cool. Okay. Um, so what is Altos Reed's understanding of the two concepts of the real 
and the pornographic in theology? So this is one of my favorite Favorite things that Altais Reed writes about. And I think that it's interesting because it's so important to me. It's um, so informative to me. And it's not often written about um, when people reflect upon her. But um, the real, um, the really dad is, I think, put simply, the call for theology to focus on reality rather than ideology. And then recognize that what has been constructed as real by those in power in theology is a colonizing ideology and and learning the history of our circumstances with of course a preference for the poor will start to deconstruct what is the real that has been given to us that's really just ideology and what is real because it's actually real okay so her concept of porn again i'm going to try to put this simply i see it um okay so sh- yeah you go you go okay, and then- I'm, okay. <laughs> First of all, with this idea of the real. So one of the questions I had, and uh, perhaps you can answer this for us, is one of my fears with Altas Reed, and I haven't um, exhaustively read her work, and so especially her later work, so I'm really not uh, for sure about this. One of my fears is she talk about the real, which is like an idealist understanding, or it's a it's a, it's the dominant. Um, real that's constructed to reproduce the real right mm-hmm. um and then then she's like the like the really real, right so there's the difference there my fear and my and my wondering is is she kind of against all forms of like power because mm-hmm. because there is an anarchist tendency that i think is really dominant here in the u.s presently where you know, the answer is not for anyone, especially any class, to seize power and to, and to become in power, but it's just to reject all power. And that's kind of, that's the most valiant Christian thing to do. A lot of progressive Christians is like, no, we don't need struggle for power. We need to struggle to everyone for everyone to just disinvest from power. But to mm-hmm, me, mm-hmm. as a communist, no, I see that the masses of proletariat and nationally oppressed, uh, nationally colonized nations here, we need to seize power. And then mm-hmm. we can transition through really hard and challenging struggles, hopefully successfully transition to, to communism, which is a world without class exploitation and classes. But that we need a transitional period. And so if mm-hmm. we want to end the exploitation and oppression first, the, the bourgeoisie and the settler colonial nation, <clears throat> white America is not going to disinvest in themselves from power. So mm-hmm. I, I guess all that to say is, does she ever mention about that the need for exploiting oppressed people to actually seize the dominant position um, to then transition out of you know dominating and dominator? Not that I can think of at the moment. She she did die pretty young, um, which is sad because I would really love to see where she would have went. Um, and I think most of her work is more focused on um, discarding the theological systems that she felt were not real, were oppressive, and then creating communal theologies that would help us be the most present with our communities that would be actually recognizing the divine. So I don't know that she saw herself um as someone that I, I'm trying to think, I, I, 
I, I again, I, I think most of this is because she she died young, and I I don't know what she would have written when she got later in her life, um, got to a later point in her life and her scholarship. I know that she was always reportedly um, involved in local organizing um, on the ground. That was very important to her, but I don't know that she really calls for people to take up arms in any way um, to seize power. Cause I think she's just so skeptical of where liberation theology is at when she's writing of appealing to Western markets that she doesn't know how to do that in theology without it being in the market. But at the same time, she also is in the Academy later in her life yeah. and moves to Edinburgh. <laughs> so she leaves oh, Argentina and she ends up living in Edinburgh. And um, I've always wondered how that affected her theology. Uh, later in her life. So Uh, that's a long way to say I'm not really sure. (laughs) Cool. Yeah, well, maybe a listener um, is familiar with it and and can speak to the issue. Because just because someone says they're a Marxist doesn't mean, I would say, you know, they adhere to revolutionary science. By Marxism, they may mean like social markets, you know, market socialism or gradually transitioning to socialism through electoral politics, which to me is Mm -hmm. all... Uh, absolutely the rejection of Marxism, but there are, especially here in the U.S. and, and in a lot of uh, a lot of parts of the world today, unfortunately, we have a very, re- we have bad understanding of Marxism, but yeah. we're working on that. Yeah. That's cool. I can't say I think that, I, 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 I struggle to see her as opposed to that as much as her work maybe doesn't focus on it, but that's a, that's an optimistic reading of her for cool. sure. All right, excellent. So we talked about the concept of the real. Um, mm-hmm. Help us understand the concept of the pornographic in theology. Yeah, so one of her definitions is, so a combination of a sexually explicit position in, in a text such as like the Mary story with a quality of immobility, um, those two things working together. So like the figure in the text is immobile Mary, if she moves out of the position of being a virgin, she's no longer Mary. And it's a sexually explicit position because she is being impregnated. Um, she talks about those two things working working together in text to create a heavily conceptualized body. And she says that that can define anything from a picture in a magazine or a text in the Bible as, as pornographic. So in other words, I think it's not that images or characters or texts have any distinct ontologies that make them inherently pornographic, but the distinguishing factor of the pornographic genre comes in the production of those images by way of abstracting bodies and then essentially ex-animating them for the use of something else to make a theological point. So it's really a method. She kind of sees the pornographic as a method, which creates these heavily conceptualized bodies, these immobile images that then are handed back to people and they try to fit. So so while liberation theologies have claimed to be attentive to the bodies of the poor, for instance, they have kind of subsumed women's struggle, women's bodies, queer bodies into the generalized poor and, and not let those specificities shine through as reality. Um, and while they've claimed to be attentive to all of those struggles, they've really, she says, they've been more concerned with um, the Beyoncenados. So, like, the sounds good, if that makes sense. Um, and their method of liberation has been one that, like, focuses on the representation of bodies in the theological marketplace rather than beginning 
with bodies that are unposed, such as, you know, maybe um, a prostitute on the street of Buenos Aires. And that might be unrecognizable as something that the liberation theologians can see that they could work with. Um, so I this is an example that might ground what I'm saying, because it could feel a lot of like a lot of abstract language. Oh, no, at, one, at one point in um, one of her later books, this is one of the, my favorite and most devastating things she says. She says, if Christ was really represented in the theology of the poor, she'd be a young girl prostituted out of a public toilet by two men. So <laughs> I think this is important because basically she's saying that once sexual oppression gets introduced, the symbolic system of theology breaks down that liberation theologians want to work inside. And I think this is where the pornographic really comes in. So basically liberation theologians have essentially worked to get the margins to the center to be recognizable. So now Jesus is not just a man dying on the cross. He's not just a white man dying on the cross for our sins. Maybe he's a man from the global South dying for solidarity, but she's very, critical about what that can do to actually liberate people or to have people recognize the specific forms of oppression that many poor people are dealing with. And when you focus on becoming represented in a system that is is inherently a colonizing system, you become a fetish. And so she really asks, can liberation theology confront itself as, as a fetish? in theological discourse and in its symbolic logic, basically. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, so I think early on in your response, I was thinking, okay, this is an idealist theology, but I, I hear you, the pornographic is is an idealist theology that disguises the very real and material brutality and the suffering that people are genuinely experiencing. Um, and and I think it's interesting that she uses the term the pornographic because mm-hmm. amongst a lot of uh, liberal circles here in the U.S., both religious and non-religious, porn has been wielded as this means of liberation mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. Uh, women. And it actually yeah. – and that whole discourse disguises – the mass exploitation of the of, of incredible uh, uh, brutal conditions that the vast majority of people in the sex and porn industries are trying to survive by putting out, hey, look at this one person in the sex industry. They make millions of dollars, right? It's the one rather than the hundreds of thousands. Um, or if we're talking about the world, we're talking about hundreds of millions and millions and millions. Um, and so, yeah, I think... It's not just like a lie. It's not just like a, a wrong idea, but it's it's a it's a gruesome lie that covers up um, the the suffering uh, mm-hmm. and the very lived, real, raw reality that that people face. Um, yeah, and it's a sexual lie, I think, which is really important to her. Um, much like porn, this creates scripted behavior of bodies that are marketed back to people as moral performance and the way they should relate to one another as moral. And I mean, Mary is a good example of this. Um, of course, it's impossible to be a virgin mother um, for most people, but the expectation that 
comes from the story that comes from this pornographic image is that I should be able to possess the purity of a virgin and also be willing to sacrifice my body any moment for what is, you know, called God's will. Um, and also have this like sexual knowledge that can really only come from sex is all these impossible expectations, um, similarly to pornography. Um, and I mean, this kind of bleeds into our next question, but I, I'm just gonna, if you don't mind, I would love to go here because you brought it up. Um, so I actually just finished working on a, a paper about this for Dr. Taylor's, um, Dr. Mark Taylor's. Mark Lewis Taylor, yeah, it's great. Yeah, it's wonderful. And I was trying to work through a lot of these ideas. Like, why does she focus on this concept of the pornographic? Why not just call it sexual ideology? Why is she using this very explicit sexual analogy? And you were saying, you know, for some people consuming this content, they were like, oh, these actors, they wanted to do this. This is their job. They might have even consented to the process, et cetera, et cetera. But there are real bodies um, that are behind the camera um, that have to be porned in order for us to consume this pornographic content. Um, and I think that she points to, and she doesn't say this explicitly, but I use her methods to think about this, that even the body of Jesus is porned in many ways. Um, that this was a man who was in horrible bodily pain at this very gruesome process. And you know, there's been a lot of scholarship come out recently that talks about the almost definite probability that Jesus was sexually assaulted in his crucifixion process, um, if not raped. And we can't face that reality because, you know, <laughs> knowing the sexual critical reality of what that is, is not, um, no one wants to imitate that. So a lot of people, and she she points to this, and this is where I think a lot of womenists have pointed to this, and this is where Dolores Williams might come in, is that there's a lot of patriarchal fantasies about what solidarity is and who is Christ. And so maybe you'll die for the cause, you're willing to go through it, you'll, you'll take the physical violence, you'll get up there. But a lot of people don't want to imitate um, someone who's been raped and sexually violated. And this is why I think her analogy of Christ being the young girl prostituted out of a public bathroom is so true and and needs to be reckoned with because there's no illusions of um, salvific solidarity there. It's just pain. And that I think really needs to be reckoned with in theology. And I, I can explain that more if that didn't make sense. Um, but I would love to hear your thoughts on that. This is absolutely in the line in line with Marcella Altas Reed and where um, theology for her has real real life political implications. And mm -hmm. so to imagine God as a young woman prostituted out of a public toilet that grounds what we're doing and what we're saying in reality, I think, in ways that most religious communities have completely, have done a lot of work to actually like, avoid. Um, mm -hmm. and, and I'll speak for myself, too. I mean, I, I didn't I didn't grow up with a sense of, um, of God that, that faced 
the material real suffering of the most gruesome kinds. And um, I think it was only with my journey out of fundamentalism into a more social justice circle in seminary. And then from that social justice circle, coming to a more communist understanding of, of what's happening in the world and why, has my theology went deeper into the very real uh, tragic reality of life for the vast uh, for vast majority of people in the world. And I would say that the primary cause of that is imperialism, and particularly U.S. imperialism. Mm-hmm. And so if we do want to address the reality of God being prostituted as a young girl in a public bathroom, then we have to address the, the primary contradictions, first being imperialism, and then also the systems of exploitation and oppression, settler colonialism and capitalism within the U.S., and mm-hmm. through addressing capitalism and settler colonialism in the in the U.S. and particularly internally, we can also crush patriarchy. So yeah, I think she says religion. It's not that it doesn't matter. It, it does matter whether we like it, whether people like it or not. And it's either going to serve the most horrific suffering, uh, the re- the reproduction of that suffering, or it's going to turn us into people who are, I would say, willing to fight for the end of that. So in, in this light, so how does Marcel Altas Reed see U.S. American and European theologians in particular, and Christian communities more broadly, kind of getting off on a kind of theological voyeurism? Mm-hmm. So I think that all of the theological concepts that the West, maybe the average seminarian, you could say, who reads liberation theology, um, the con- the theological concepts that they glean, such as the idea of solidarity, of Jesus dying for solidarity, um, I think she would say that a lot of this is voyeuristic. Um, similarly, go- going back, this ties in with, with um, her concept of the pornographic. So while you are watching maybe this new symbolic system unfold. We're like, oh, maybe Jesus wasn't a white man. Maybe maybe Jesus was a man from the global South dying in solidarity um, for his community. I, I've rescued my symbolic image of Jesus on the cross, and now solidarity is my new theological concept without ever really dealing with what she would kind of call the, the theopornographic gaze, the spiritualizing gaze of bodies. So she says at one point, um, she says, Jesus presents a case of chronic terminal pain, objectified as a way to produce an illusion of him having control to assert on the realms of emotional and bodily pain. And this turns the minority body into a point of fetish, eventually assimilated into discourse and defanged of its disruptive potential. So instead of really sitting with the pain behind what's happening here, maybe the call to action that that we need to have, we immediately go to ideas, we immediately go to, oh, solidarity, I'll, I'll make everything around solidarity. Um, and she says, ideally theologians are quick to rescue these images so that they can have more discourse, but materialists go to real life and liberation theologians haven't, haven't done that to her, which has helped the West look look upon the life of people in the global south without any real attention to their pain and suffering 
What, what would you say to that? Okay, yeah, this is interesting. So what popped in my mind is this trend, uh, the, the language I think predominantly, although it could be swinging towards the language of solidarity here in the U.S., though, is allyship. And mm-hmm. so there's a, um, in theological circles, if you're in progressive Christian community, you want to say, um, and you want everyone to know that you read black theologians, and not just black theologians, but theologians of women of color. And I do see a kind of performance amongst some progressive Christian mm-hmm. communities, perhaps well-meaning, but I think the consequence of this is that it's a it's an allyship up in your head, and there's no changed practice in the real world. There's no change of actual political practice, and the, mm-hmm. it's not the problem of individuals. These aren't. Uh, I, I would say, you know, I definitely I, I see this in my past as well, and I'm sure if I t- took a second to stop, um, I, I could see in ways that I continue to make this error. But I think perhaps what Altos Reed is really trying to say is that this allyship up in our head doesn't mean shit. And so, <laughs> or, or the solidarity, right? Uh, up yeah, in our head. Yeah. So what we the need solidarity, is solidarity. Yeah. What we need is real solidarity and where we actually start to develop and participate in real political struggle. Now, I'll also say that this is uh, it's not going to always be welcomed or imagined well in circles where liberalism is still the dominant ideology. And so it might even look weird, say, for like, like a person like myself who I'm a white dude. You know, some circles are like, well, hey, why do you have a podcast, right? You're a white dude. You know, we have enough white dude podcasts. Or, you know, why are you organizing or why are you trying to to do any form of education? You know, you're a white dude. And on one hand, I totally get that. But I think a class analysis helps me see that actually I have real, like I need solidarity with people who are exploited and oppressed in ways I will never experience. Um, Rather than trying to be like this ally who's like, hey, these people have it worse off than I and I have privilege. um, When really like my suffering, my exploitation, my oppression is inseparable from the exploitation and oppression of people way worse off than I in the US and even across all across the world. So I think that's where a Marxist analysis helps us get a, a deep and a true solidarity, like actually participating in real political struggle and understanding like who really is our ally, who's really our enemy, rather than saying, well, I've read James Cone and that means something about me or something. Yeah. At the heart of her critique is something similar to this, which is speaking to liberation theologians largely from the global south, quote unquote, um, saying like, hey, you thought you achieved liberation because of this theology, because you've made yourself recognizable to theological or to Western theological systems and to the academy. But what you haven't realized is that women and anyone living a, a queer experience, not only are we not liberated, but you will not be liberated until we are liberated. Our liberation is bound together. And of course, women's bodies and, and queer bodies bear the brunt of, of the pain that the theo-spiritual gaze that liberation theologians have kind of been perpetuating, they, they bear that that pain mostly, but they also, she, she's pretty clear, men bear this pain. She, she's kind of funny for constantly poking at really popular male theologians such as uh, Karl Barth and Paul Tillich. And she says like, you know who else wasn't free? Uh, Karl Barth, 
Paul Tillich because they had these secret sexual lives that they could never write about and they could never theology theologize about. And liberation theologians, you can't theologize about your sex lives either. So really, in in your sex life, are you not also just alienated from from God, which is what you claim is the center of your life and that you've dedicated your whole life to? So really, you're you're not free. You're not free. And some of this could be seen as maybe an aside to like maybe more broad uh, revolutionary struggle, but like our love lives are are not small, you know, <laughs> like a lot of people's only haven and sanctuary in living these lives are their comrades and their partners and the lovers throughout their life. And I think she makes that really clear. And so if, if our, our theology leaves us alone in love, in romantic and sexual love and friendship, because she talks a lot about how heterosexual ideology and theology ruins friendship, makes people very lonely, doesn't show us how to be comrades, to have this deep love that we need to have this revolutionary struggle, then how are we going to do this? And this is where she she becomes very spiritual. She's concerned about who you spiritually have to be to be a revolutionary, I think, in Mm -hmm. a lot of senses. Absolutely. There, yeah, there is a inseparable interplay happening between the political analysis, the political struggle, and that deep spot where it hits the uh, the interpersonal and 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 the individual. You know, we critique individualism, but that doesn't mean we like reject uh, individuality, right? That's uh that's an inerrant part. I mean, anybody, I would say, uh, a correct uh, understanding of the history of revolutionary science, one of the main things is uh, about the relationship between the general and the particular. And this would be a, a great a, a great example of, uh, you know, I often think about and sometimes talk about uh, with my partner about how my relationship with my wife is not free from our real like class position. And it mm-hmm. suffers because of our class position. Even though we are in the labor aristocracy on a global level, our class position, it does make our relationship, it creates problems that wouldn't, we wouldn't have had if, if we were in a socialist transition toward, or if we were in a classless society. And even even if we were in a more petite bourgeois position in, in the U.S., we would still suffer from capitalism, imperialism, and, and white ideology, and settler colonial. All, all these things shape the most deep and intimate personal experiences where where we're in bed together or we're out for a walk or, you know, who knows, right? Yeah. She, one of my favorite quotes by her is she says, economy is just a perspective on how relationships should ought to function. Mm. (laughs) And um, she talks a lot about that. And of course, how that impacts our sexual and romantic relationships. Um, But also about who we see as, a liberator. So something that I think is really profound about her um, critique of solidarity as kind of this patriarchal fantasy is how people often look to save yours and don't recognize <laughs> that our community forms a person and that even Jesus to her, she says there are many saviors. Jesus was one of them and his community formed formed him into being and loved him into being. And of course, that's going to be a more controversial part of her thought. But I do think it's important to recognize that people aren't coming out of a vacuum, that they're loved into being. They're taught by their entire community. And I I think that kind of reorients how she would see what being a savior is, what the end goal of that is, and then ultimately what salvation is, what her soteriology is. Mm. 
Brooke, it's been an awesome conversation. I really appreciate your reflection, your thinking, the work that you've been doing past and present. Again, I'm going to link in the show notes, folks. Go check out her essay on Altos Reads and, and Decent Theology and Mary um, around Christmas time. It's a really cool essay. But let's go ahead and, and wrap this up. And maybe one day we can have you back on to continue this conversation. But what does it mean, right? This is the basic, this is the general idea. This is the kind of the home run hitter for Altos Reed. So what does it mean for our theology to be indecent? And why is this being indecent so important for Marcella? Mm-hmm. I'll start with why I think it's important. Because um, doing it is harder. Um I think for her, it's ultimately really important because, as I said earlier, it shows us that we've, we have a false divide about what is our material lives and what's the divine dimension of our lives, that we don't have to split the spiritual and the material. And then ultimately, this opens up the possibility of knowing God, which is, you know, huge. <laughs> she says that God is the first casualty in theology when, when God becomes a puppet um, for heterosexist ideology for capitalist economy relations. Um, so when we actually do the method of indecenting, as she calls, we, we have that possibility. Um, the method of indecenting is more complicated. I think she would say it's a, con- she, she calls it an art. Um, it's a contextual art and a communal art to her. And it's not about tracing a path of progress in our theological constructions, but about pointing to our twisted categories and then undressing the history behind those twisted things and seeing those contradictions and letting them actually come out instead of creating more strict dogmas to create, you know, new pornographic images of what a person is supposed to be, how our relationships should function. And so it goes beyond swapping body symbols to do very basic um, empowerment through representation um, and shows us how to create real narratives of what's really happening. So instead of rescuing images, we can point to the young girl who's experiencing life in the sex trade in Buenos Aires and say, you are Christ. And, And what does that mean? Yeah, one of the things that pops in my mind, uh, again, returning to this theme of honesty and courage, which is so fundamental, I think, for all Toss Reed's work, is this is uh, also the embracing of failure. Mm-hmm. And I think if there's a community out there or an individual, perhaps if you in, you know individually want to start doing the hard work, which we all should, of having that deep internal investigation and reflection, but also perhaps it's a relationship, you and um, a friend or a lover of, of some kind, right, um, needs to do some more honest reflection about who you are in relationship to one another, or perhaps it's a larger community. And... And I'll say, like, whether it's a person or a, you know, immediate relationship or a community, it's not going to be easy um, <laughs> to be honest and and to have the courage uh, to be uh, to be honest about uh, past assumptions and past practices. But I think if we just embrace the fact that we have greatly failed, failed ourselves, failed one another, and we would also say say failed God, I think it releases us from 
this kind of like, oh, I shame me. Oh, fuck me, basically. I'm this like terrible person and and I'm not as um, advanced or, you know, whatever the word is, uh, as I've thought myself to be or something like that. Um, I think embracing failure has given me in recent years, actually, the courage to be able to admit all the mistakes that I've made in practice or in word or in thinking. I mean, it doesn't solve all of our problems, but any listener Mm -hmm. kind of listening in right now, I I think moving towards that indecent theology from Altas's Reed's kind of uh, request of us requires of us to be honest and to have that courage to be honest. And it's not going to be easy, even if you do embrace failure, right? But I think um, embracing the reality of our past, present, and future failure can help us get to the root reality of who we've been, who we are, and then it helps us uh, give. It actually creates the possibility of becoming who we really want or should become. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think that's very true. I mean, I I think if we're keeping with her language, I think it's it's very similar to doing something like quitting porn, you know, not seeing porn as the text for your sexual relationships is a very hard process when that's what you've been fed since you were eight years old. Um, And similarly, it's hard to to think of theology in a way that doesn't work in in this method um, that she would see as pornographic, that requires you to face your community more directly and to see the real and then reflect on the real and then go back to the real and have this dialogical process. Um, it's a hard thing to do. And it, like you said, it, it requires failure, which theology might proper theology proper might have seen in the past as incorrect. Um, that's not what you're focused on. It's the process of, of that theology. Well, excellent. Uh, Brooke, this has been incredible. I really appreciate you, um, as I said earlier. And um, is there any uh, final words that you'd like to wrap us up with on our discussion for uh, Marcella Altas Reid? Maybe just to say that I think more people should to check check her out. She's I think she's hilarious. I think she's really refreshing. And I think in a time where a lot of American, particularly online, uh, leftist, socialist, communists really don't know what to do with the question of queerness. I think she's really important and she's a good resource to show you um, how you can talk about this in a way that is thoroughly Marxist. And I think she's a, she's a great resource for that, in my opinion. Mm. Yeah, that's great. I'll also say, you know, we we are still wanting, there's a vacuum for a communist theological engagement of sexuality that's accessible to the masses of sexual yeah. beings. Because as we've mentioned time and time again, Marcella Altas Reed unfortunately is not accessible to the like the vast majority of readership. So I would encourage you do check out her work if you can find it. But you know, don't don't feel intimidated or, or, or overwhelmed by mm-hmm. some of her words because it, it is, it is, unfortunately, I'm not for sure why. I, that's, that's something I'd like to talk to her about. Um, it's not accessible to the vast majority of people. So um, I am I, very... Go sorry, go. No, I, I really hope and I look forward to the revolutionary scientific thinkers uh, who are also Christians or theologians or, I mean, uh, really, you know, people of any religious traditions who engage 
the the questions of sexuality and gender uh, more concretely and not in a more liberal form because I would love a very accessible kind of proletarian accessible book that talks about God and sexuality but doesn't reproduce the individualism or the terrible like disguising of uh, sexual exploitation that liberal and this like radical liberal ideology is doing right now. Yeah, I will say, and you can cut this out if it's too long, but there is a book called Queer and Indecent by Taya Cooper that just came out that's essentially a Marcel Altes Reed primer that breaks her thought down very easily, succinctly. You don't have to have had a seminary education or other. It's very accessible, and I would definitely recommend people start there if they find her inaccessible. Queer and Indecent by who again? Queer and Indecent by Tia Cooper, and I know that Altaeus Reed was her doctoral advisor, so she also had a relationship with her, so oh, sweet. It's, a, yeah, we'll, it's a good book. Yeah, we'll link that in the show notes. And it's it's not super, super accessible, but it is, I, I think, a very more accessible read is also um, Queer Theology by Lynn Marie Tonstad. Yeah, that's also yeah. a great book that engages some of um, Altaeus Reed's work. And so, yeah, I'd recommend that book, too. We'll link all that stuff in the show notes. Brooke, it's been great. Uh, You're awesome. And I appreciate your both your witness and your uh, political commitments as well. Thank you. It's lovely to be here.